Welcome to Agatha Christie, She Watched, our spoiler-heavy look at the movie and TV adaptations of the mystery genre's greatest writer. I'm Bill Peschel of Peschel Press, publishers of the annotated novels of Agatha Christie, and today we'll be talking about industrial fog, police brutality, old women and young lovers, and a blood-stained pussycat. It's The Witness for the Prosecution, the 2016 version written by Sarah Phelps and starring Toby Jones and Kim Cattrall. But first, let me introduce my partner in marriage, as well as crime of the fictional kind, Teresa Peschel. Teresa, how are you doing today? Hi, Bill. And it was a terrible thing to see that beautiful, fluffy white kitty is drowned. Yes, and that's a warning, first of all. And not only are we doing spoilers here, but you should be warned about this episode that there is a dead cat involved. There is cat brutality. None of us actually care about on-screen brutality of the police nature or of murdering women or anything else like that. But by God, you cannot drown a cat. And it's relatively tastefully handled, but the beautiful white Persian is drowned. Because it walked through the blood of, of Kim Cattrall and tracked it across the nice white carpet. And the maid wasn't upset about the carpet. But she was upset about how the cat basically was like, oh, you're in the way. I need to walk this way. So Kitty walks through the, through the pool of blood, leaving little bloody paw prints behind. And what a well-trained uh, theatrical cat that was and then kitty client walks across the body and then sits down to wash sits, sits to wash his paws to lick the blood her mistress's blood off her paws but you know hey the cat has to have clean paws and the maid was up so upset that um at, at basically how the cat behaved instead of like a dog but hey it's a cat they they don't they're not dogs you just have to understand that they're not dogs. And so Janet, the maid, murders the cat. Which has ramifications for her. So she pays for it in the end. Oh, so. boy, does she. It's almost like a dumb witness. When uh, we saw the film adaptation of that, I'm going to say his name wrong because, of course, I can't remember it. But Dr. Gunderson, he told Poirot he had to either adopt Bob or Bob was going to be gassed. And then Dr. Gunderson was gassed soon thereafter by the murderer. And he deserved it. For saying that poor clever Bob would have to be murdered. And here Janet murders the cat. Yep. So if you're expecting, when you're, when you're going to watch this, if you're expecting the Marlene Dietrich, Billy Wilder version from the, from the late 50s, there are some interesting changes made to this. First of all, it's based on the short story. Yes, the short story Agatha originally wrote and published in January of 1925, and she called it Traitor's Hands. She chose that title because the solicitor, John Mayhew, thinks to himself about how he has a habit. His wife had pointed out to him about a habit that he had that he didn't even pay attention to, which was taking off and polishing his pince-nez and putting them back. And he is ruminating after the trial. He's watching Romaine Heigler in the box, twisting and turning his hands. And she's thinking, where did he see that before? And then he realizes to his shock and horror that it was the woman who gave him the incriminating letter had exactly the same gesture. 
Now, when Agatha wrote this story in 1925, or rather she wrote it in 1924 and it was published, as I said, in January of 1925, she was never happy with the ending because this is one of the very few pieces that she ever wrote in which the murderer got away with it. Leonard Vole got away with murder because his wife helped him to do so. And she wasn't happy and she rewrote A Traitor's Hand as witness for the prosecution as a stage play. And when you have seen either the Marlene Dietrich and Tyrone Power and Charles Lawton movie in 1957 or the Bow Bridges and Diana Rigg TV movie in 1982, you are seeing the stage play. And did you read a 33-page version of The Witness for the Prosecution? Oh, the title was changed when it was published in the story collection. Oh, so that is Traitor's Hands. Yes, then. yes. Oh, oh okay. Tra- Traitor's Hands was titled the witness for the prosecution when the story was finally collected and somebody decided, oh, well, we should follow the stage play name, but they keep the in the title. It is not witness for the prosecution. It is the witness for the prosecution. And that gives you the clue that, hey, this isn't the stage play. I guess that's the point. So if you were expecting the ending where Leonard Vole gets his just desserts when his wife knifes him in court... Well, that's not going to happen. They go off and have their happy ever after because she saved him from himself. And that's one of the one of the many changes that Sarah Phelps made following the original story. And she also, of course, added her take on John Mayhew as well. Yes. And it is mentioned in the story that he has a wife. Uh, you do meet a little bit of the King's Council, Sir Charles, very little. All of the stage stuff where you see, uh, oh, oh, and by the way, they go back to the original name for uh, Leonard Vole's wife. It is Romaine in the story. Oh. It is an Austrian name, even though it makes me think of a head of lettuce every time. <laughs> but there you are. So her name is, was originally Romaine in the short story, and that's why you're getting it now. Sarah Phelps followed the short story like I said, not the stage play. In fact, I would say that the one part of the short story that she did not pay attention to, and she could have, because it certainly would have added more rationale for Janet McIntyre to be as angry as she was, Emily French did have a near-do-well nephew who sponged off of her and whom Janet was fond of, and that character got disappeared. We have Toby Jones. Yes, Toby Jones plays John Mayhew. Who, if you've seen, if you've seen him in other roles, he has very distinctive facial features. He's a very distinctive look. He was uh, Ratchet. Yes, he was Ratchet in Murder on the Orient Express with David Suchet. Yes, and he also plays a metal detecting metal, fan, a metal detective hobbyist in the Detectorist. Yes, he's a Detectorist, by which, the way. He is not a metal detector. That is the tool that they use. They are Detectorists, which is a very charming uh, series by the way, who was written by one of the pirates from the Pirates of the Caribbean. It turns out he's one of those British actors who's also a writer and a director and a, and a man of many trades. And it's a very charming series. But here, Toby is, it's a story of weakness. A lot of it is around him and his weakness and his past that comes back to haunt him. What's also really interesting about the witness for the prosecution, the short story, as opposed to the play or the movie versions is you're not seeing the King's Counsel, the Charles Lawton role, as the major focus. No, it's the solicitor. And this is where an American audience looks at this and says, wait a minute, you need two lawyers? I know people lawyer up, but you need two lawyers and one of them 
does all of the legwork and the other one puts on the red dress and the wig and poses in front of the judge in the courtroom and said yes because a solicitor that's a one half of the lawyer duties and then you have the barrister which is the other half of the lawyer duties and barristers get to try cases but solicitors don't they stand before the bar which is where the bar that divides the judge and the officials from the rest of the courtroom and, and, and that's it why is called it, barristers. Yes, it is very strange to an American audience. When you watch the film versions of the play, you don't even think about the presence of the solicitor. And John Mayhew is in the stage play, but he's a minor character. Here he is the focus of the story. He is the solicitor. He is not by any means a wealthy man. He is a uh, and I think Sarah Phelps set that up really, really well. He is really down there at the bottom of the food chain. He is trolling for work by walking up and down, peeking into the prison cells at, I guess it's Wandsworth, and asking the prisoners if they need legal representation. He is trolling for clients like an ambulance chaser. He's wearing clothes that predate the war, and you know the reason is because he can't afford to replace them. And he lives in this little dive of a flat with his very tired, worn-out wife who is deeply unhappy. And he doesn't really notice. There's a scene in there where she is stabbing herself with a needle until she draws blood, and he doesn't notice. And I will say, by the way, that it is clear nobody on that set knew how to sew because when you hand sew and you do a lot of it, you learn to wear a thimble very quickly because you need to keep from pricking your fingers repeatedly. And I didn't see any thimbles. When I was getting the images for that, I noticed he was also coughing a lot. And it's it's attributed to uh, suffering from a gas attack during World War One. This is set in was it twenty three or twenty six? They said nineteen twenty three. This is set in nineteen twenty three. So the war has been over for what, about four five, years, four or five years. Yeah, he served in the military and suffered from a gas attack. And we also see his wife, and it was not very clear because she's sitting on a bed and stroking something on the bed, and it's well made, and it turns out that it's her son's room. Yes, their son's room, their son's sweater, everything is preserved like a shrine. And it's only later we learn a little more about what the story is behind that. But in the meantime, he's at the jail, and all this is being shot through a filter of industrial fog. You know, we talk about the romance of fog-lit nights that Sherlock Holmes is, is walking through. It's smoke, it's smog, it's pollution. It looked absolutely vile. And it was. it was. It was apparently yellowish in color. It stained everything. And if you were at all susceptible to lung infections, you would be sick. You were sick as a dog. And that's part of living in romantic Victorian London. And that went on until I think it was like in even the 40s, 40s and 50s. It wasn't until they started moving away from burning wood and coal in stoves and they had clean air acts that it started clearing up. And when I say this is all shot this way, I mean every room in the house, in his basement office, in As the streets. As he's walking through the streets, he's in Wandsworth. Even the nightclubs had a smoky look to them you know they were smoking like chimneys there too (laughs) yeah that that didn't didn't help help. i'm sure that didn't help but you see that he is not an upper class solicitor he is very poor he is on the verge of complete failure and he isn't going to get a client better than leonard vole 
And later on, once he has taken Leonard Vole on as a client, he has to persuade a barrister to take the case in the court because he can't do it. He has to find a barrister. And there's a lovely scene there where he's chasing after the barrister who is descending these magnificent stairs. Beautiful architecture. Like he's in a, Absolutely spectacular architecture. It's a major class difference because here's Toby Jones in his bowler hat and he's like five foot one in this this. Sir uh, Hugo Meredith is just... No, I thought that was Sir Charles. Sir Charles was the barrister that he ended up using. Oh, oh right, right. Okay, so so he's striding down the stairs looking, you know, six foot five, and, and he's listening to this case and saying, you want me to take this on? He's been seen outside the flat. He's been taking money from... From uh, Emily French. And then he mentions the money. That's right. Uh, Mayhew says... If Vol wins, he inherits Emily French's estate, 185,000 pounds plus, and Mayhew goes on to uh, list them, the flat, stocks and bonds, antiques, jewelry, fine art, furs. Emily French was a very wealthy woman. And Sir Charles stops and he and smiles. <laughs> now, another place where we saw the class difference between Mayhew and Sir Charles is uh, Mayhew is taken aback at how Janet McIntyre acts. Janet is Emily French's lady's maid and, you know, housekeeper and basically does everything for her. Sir Charles recognizes how Upper class servants, longtime servants like ladies' maids and valets, behave. He doesn't find it surprising. Mayhew does. And that is, I think, an example of the class difference between them, the different experiences that they have had. So the, the case surrounds Emily French, played by Kim Cattrall. And she does an absolutely bang-up job. She really does. The short story describes her as being elderly. The stage play describes her as being elderly. The previous presentations that we've seen have seen her as a dotty, fluffy old lady. But in the short story, at one point, Leonard Vole specifically says she's 40 years older than I am. If he's about 25, that only makes Emily French 65. And, you know, there's a difference between a 65-year-old woman and an 85-year-old woman. I don't know what term they used at that time period, but today we would say cougar. And well, certainly it's played by Kim Cattrall. That's oh, boy, and if you remember her as Samantha in Sex in the City, you know what we're talking about. She is a woman with her own income simply buckets of money. She doesn't have anybody to tell her no other than Janet. Since the nephew was removed, we have no idea if she has any relatives or family of any kind, even distant collateral relatives like third cousins or something like that. We know nothing about her. What we know is that she's bored and she wants her pleasure. And of course, because she has gone through menopause, she can now have as much sex as she can get and not worry about pregnancy. And she can afford to pay for what she wants. She sees Leonard. He's coming down the stairs with a tray of glasses and snacks. He's going up the stairs and In she notices him and he notices her and he, he drops the tray as he's turning around to notice her gets fired at once and then she gets him home and he is very much overwhelmed by her sumptuous house her sumptuous manner and her attitude that i'm paying for you and you're going to do what i want there's a lovely scene where she insists that he take a bath for her so she can admire his manly form in the bathtub and she feeds 
him and he has to if he wants to make some money if he doesn't want to cause a scene he has to do what she wants because she's the boss and he is of course going to uh Roger her with the best of them, because why not? And the maid takes an instant dislike. Uh, Janet says, you're going to last two weeks, just like all the others, and then she's going to throw you out. But it turns out he lasts longer. Yes, he lasts about three months. And you see how Leonard is being cleaned up. He has a better haircut. He is better groomed. His clothes have improved, because Emily French bought all of this for him. And then she made the mistake. She decided that she was so taken with him because Leonard, in this case, and, and the character of Leonard Vole is absolutely critical. When you watch the Tyrone Power version, you can understand why a dotty old lady is going to fall for Tyrone Power because he has to be smarmy, he has to be oily, he has to be charming. You have to see both that the maid can look at him and recognize danger and the old lady can look at him and say, wow. Lots of women look at him and say, wow. When you watch the 1982 version with Bo Bridges, he is a California boy stranded in London. And it just doesn't work because he doesn't look like he cares and he doesn't care about anybody around him. He's sleepwalking through the park. So here you are with Billy Howell is playing Leonard and he's just perfect. He's incredibly handsome and he's eager to please and he has this charming, innocent naivete, this boyishness about him. He's interested enough in what you're doing that you can project your own fantasies on him, but you do not feel that he doesn't care. He feels unsure and he wants to please you and he looks at you with those big puppy dog eyes. What do you want me to do? And so Emily French says, bend over. <laughs> <laughs> Or bend me over. Or bend me over or get down on that bed because yeah. that's what we're going to do next. Yeah. He works really well because his innocent naivete, his boyishness, his I don't know how this could be happening. It completely takes in John Mayhew. Mm -hmm. Mayhew is a very unhappy man. He has a miserably unhappy marriage. When World War I started, he was all gung-ho, filled with patriotism, and he and his son both enlisted, and he assisted his son in lying about his age. So He was 17. 17. On his 17th birthday, killed by gas, Mayhew suffered his own gas injuries, although I think because you find out at the end that he apparently had severe bronchitis, that you wonder how much of it was gas and how much of it was guilt and how much of it was bronchitis that, mm -hmm. you know, he's coughing throughout his life. But he feels a great deal of guilt. He didn't save his son. In fact, he took his son to his death. And now he's got young Leonard who he just can't believe that Leonard is guilty because he doesn't come across that way. He doesn't come across as a typical street thug. Right. He's more concerned about how Romaine would react if she finds out. And Romaine being his wife. And you had said something about Rumpole of the Bailey, mm -hmm. which is a, apparently a book series about a British barrister. And there's a group of... Uh, oh, the Timson family. The Timson family. Would the, anybody in the Timson family make you feel, oh my God, this innocent, sweet boy is being railroaded. No, no, because they were a cockney family of cheerful thieves and anything else that happened to fall off the back of the lorry. And that provided Rumpel with a lot of his uh, income 
so they could buy his plonk at Pomeroy's wine bar. They're, they're John Mortimer short stories, well worth reading if you like uh, humorous British legal stories. So what, I, what I'm trying to get at is that Leonard just oozes sweetness and innocence. He's a little lost lamb, and you just can't quite see him as bashing Emily French in the head. And you really need that because you have to really feel for him. Then the tables are turned and you discovered that, yeah, this sweet, innocent, angelic uh, young man is perfectly capable of bashing someone over the head. But until then, there's a lovely scene before he goes in to testify. They're in the cells underneath the old Bailey and he's having trouble tying his tie and Mayhew ties his tie for him. And it's what a father would do for his son. I've seen you do that. I've and seen you tie Mark's tie because I sure wouldn't be able to do it. We also see how John Mayhew meets Romaine Helgar, who's yeah, and served, he, playing in the chorus. And and then he sees her a little bit later on. She has now become the star of the show because, oh my God, her husband has been arrested for murder and nothing fills the cheap seats like knowing that the star is related to a murderer of the day. And she is singing this sentimental song as she rises on the big, glittery, tinsel oh, moon. On a crescent moon. On a crescent moon. Which we'll see again later. And she, yeah, that's right. We saw the crescent moon at the very end. Yes, that's but she's right. singing, let me call you sweetheart. And, and he is just, just crying the he first is time. Overcome. One of the strengths of this particular adaptation is you know she is an actress. You know she is an actress. It isn't really rubbed in your face because you see her in the chorus and you see her singing on the moon and you don't think, oh my God, she's playing Lady Macbeth. You don't see her do that. But the implication is there if you want it. She is an actress. Well, there is that scene where before she testifies, you see her Sir, in her room rehearsing her lines. Yes, she is rehearsing, rehearsing her, her testimony. Lines. So we have Mayhew being very attached to Leonard and Romaine. Oh, yes. It's almost like they are a redemption for him, that he couldn't save his son, but maybe he can save Leonard. Yes, and then the story follows the rest of the the story, the short story, and the movie versions as well. You know, he they have they see very much in trouble, especially when Romaine turns on Leonard and oh, just and, becomes and, the witness for the prosecution. And yes, and the prosecution is delighted, especially when they discover that she's not Leonard's wife, because apparently at this time, a woman could neither testify for or against her husband. But if you were living in sin, you could. There are some lovely scenes where King's Counsel and Mayhew are trying to find out from Leonard, was she ever a prostitute? How did she behave? Is there anything we can use against her to discredit her testimony by saying basically she's a lying slut whore? Leonard stands up for Romaine throughout the entire film. She pays her bills on time. She pays her bills on time. He cannot imagine that she would ever turn on him. He is just horrified. He can't believe it. And again, I think that this is really well done because it reinforces to Mayhew that he couldn't be guilty. His first thought all the time is of Romaine. And then, of course, you discover that Romaine is clearly the brains in that family. He bashed in Emily French's head because he has apparently impulse control problems and he couldn't wait a little bit. And she has to think fast. And she knows that nobody's going to believe the testimony of a loving wife, but they will believe the negative testimony of an evil, vengeful foreign slut. And 
Mayhew gets the note, visit the Limehouse district at midnight. He meets this woman who turns out to be Christine Moffat, who was replaced by Romaine in the show and, and claims that she was attacked with a hot boiling water and sugar that melted her face. So you get to see her, her melted right eye and, you know, skin flaps and all that. Which I have to say worked so much better than Diana Rigg in the 1982 oh, version. God, yes. Oh my God. I'll say that, but not as good as um, Marlene Dietrich. Marlene did a really good job. Yeah, because I was not aware of the story then. <laughs> and I did not see that woman as Marlene Dietrich until near the end. And that, that fooled me. One of the issues that we have with watching the movies in the Agatha Project is by the time you've seen the story for the second time or the third time or the fourth time, you know what's coming. So you don't, you lose the shock of the new, you lose the surprise. So we get Romaine on the stand and the letter being revealed. And, and she's, oh, she's angry and she's screaming and she puts on a really good performance, exactly calculated to make sure that the jury loathes her and well he couldn't possibly be guilty that's what they're thinking right so basically at that point it wouldn't have mattered what the judge did in his summation because the jury had already decided that lying conniving bitch because this is a jury of 12 men that's right it is a jury of 12 men. And remember, we watched the King's Council and Mayhew discussing with each other and then with Leonard, you know, is she a prostitute? In fact, I think if I remember correctly, at one point, the King's Council, Sir Charles, says, I will say actress and they will hear whore. Because yep. actresses in 1923 and before did not have the best of reputations. And you could say that was earned. I mean, that's why you had <laughs> stage door Johnny's that's waiting right. outside with champagne and roses. And that also says, you know, when she attacks him and says, evil men, I was wondering how that was set up. But when I think about it now, when you're playing to an audience of 12 men screaming at poor John Mayhew, remember, she didn't scream at the King's Council who was sending her up. She was screaming at the little guy with the with the pince nez glasses and saying, evil men, evil men. I could see the ju the 12 guys going, ah, <laughs> I know, I know, I know who's guilty <laughs> and it's not him. That's right. <laughs> it's very carefully calculated on her part. We don't even get to see the not guilty plea. It's just it just jumps right from there with with John Mayhew being congratulated by everybody and he's rising in the business. Oh, no, he fall. He collapses. He, well, he does collapse. Yes, he, he collapses, collapses out, and out he of, wakes up in the, ho in the hospital, hospital bed a couple of days later. And there's Leonard Vole looking incredibly well groomed and turned out. And he gives him this beautiful watch. Thank you for saving me. It's at that point that you really start seeing some of the weaknesses of John Mayhew, because this is a John Mayhew character study. It is not a Leonard Vole character study. John Mayhew, remember, he has his wife. He lost his son. He doesn't see his wife stabbing herself with the sewing needle right in front of him. He gives her this beautiful blue-green scarf, and we never see her wear it, and he doesn't apparently notice. He doesn't really notice her. It's like he doesn't quite follow through, and so he... He meets Christine and gets the letter from her and he has no money on him because he is, you know, one step away from bankruptcy. And she says, you have to come back with money. Oh, of course I will. 
yeah, he fell over and collapsed and ended up in the hospital for a couple of days. But he never goes back to Limehouse to pay Christine. And then while he's in the hospital, Leonard comes up to him, gives him the watch and says, I feel like I should do something for Janet because the way the will was rewritten by Emily French, she gave all the money to Leonard Vole, and she didn't leave any kind of a bequest or stipend for any of her servants, including the gardeners, because I guarantee you that Janet McIntyre didn't keep up that lily pond. She left nothing to Janet, and Mayhew thinks about Janet and says, no, you shouldn't give her anything. That was a piece of cruelty, because Janet is not going to be, she is an older woman, and it's going to be darn hard for her to find a position that was as good as that one. Even if she was, in his eyes, vindictive about Leonard and so certain that he killed her mistress, it's still human because that's how you did as servants. You did servants by pensioning them off and making sure they have a little bit of income because, of course, at the time you didn't have the welfare state. And there comes a point where you can't work. And so you pension off elderly servants so that they can have a little flat and a little bit of freedom and a little bit of money and they can manage he threw Janet McIntyre out into the street. That was Mayhew's choice because Leonard Vole made the offer and he said, don't give her anything. Yeah. And he also got John Mayhew to sell the house. And gave him a huge wadge of money, 40%. 40% commission. So he all of a sudden comes into money and he's notorious for being successful. And you can see that his star has suddenly risen in the world. He's got some money. He's getting social status. He's getting better clientele. He has a beautiful new office with his name painted on the door. He no longer has to go trolling in the jail cells looking for clients. Everything is going great. And then... You reach the real climax, which is he takes his wife, France. We're going to rekindle our relationship, even though he says he loves her, but he doesn't really see her. He doesn't really see Mrs. Mayhew. They get to this beautiful hotel. The seaside resort. A seaside resort, <clears throat> and he sees them. It's Because it's several years later. It's Leonard and Romaine. She has gotten out of jail she her served time for perjury. Yep, served time for perjury because she lied on the stand. And they have just gotten married, and he's just shocked, absolutely shocked. And he goes up to their room. I don't think he recognized her. Yeah, that's he right. Went that's up right. With a bottle of champagne and an ice bucket, and, and that's right on the because door he saw Leonard Vole, but with he a saw a red-haired woman with a red-haired woman in a veil that covered her face. She was wearing a very twenties vintage wedding dress with a veil and so he thinks oh leonard must have met some nice girl and he goes up with a champagne bucket and he walks into the room and it's romaine heigler you marry what and he, he's just absolutely shocked and they tell him the truth that yes leonard killed emily french and romaine set everything up very carefully on the spur of the moment because it was the only way she could save him she loved him so much there's, there's a lot of love and passion in this movie. She loved him so much that she perjured herself to save him from the noose. And Mayhew is shocked by all this, not only for this, but because of Leonard got off, Janet got tried. That's right, because he had to find another murderer. He, he really did want to solve the murderer of Emily French. There's this point at which, I think it's right after the trial, he goes back to the house. He's, he's getting he's, the house. They're getting the house ready for sale. That's right. They're getting the house ready for sale. And so he's walking around. He walks out into the back garden, and he notices a statue has been knocked over next to the lily pond. And he writes it, and then he sees something in 
the pond, and it it is, I'm sorry to say this, it's Mimi the cat. Janet was so upset by seeing the cat walk across her mistress's body that apparently after the police left, taking the body with them, she took the cat into the back garden over to the pond and drowned that beast, trying to wash the blood off of it and off of her. She was that upset. Mayhew starts thinking, well, who else could have killed her? And then he looks at how she snapped and strangled the cat and drowned it. Maybe she did that to Emily French. And then this, this cycles back to an earlier scene when he is trying to come up with ideas for the king's council, Sir, Sir Charles. And Sir Charles says something along the lines of, I cannot imagine how we are going to frame a case about a no. nymphomaniac old lady and a deranged lesbian maid. <laughs> and that's exactly what they end up doing. But there's also a case where apparently she had gone to the lawyer. That's right. She went to the lawyer like the day of the murder. After um, Emily had rewritten the will. To find out if Leonard Vole was accused of murder, then. If he's convicted, what happens? What and they happens say the to previous the will? will comes back in and she would get her portion. I do have to wonder. I would have to watch it a second time to find out the timing because maybe she went and saw the lawyer the next morning after the murder. Because it seems really kind of weird that she would go the morning of the murder to the lawyer. But if she went to the lawyer the morning after the, the murder, that would make more sense to me if she's innocent. When I think about it, it was not clear. Mayhew points out the dead cat to Inspector... Detective Bream. Yeah, Detective Inspector Bream. And he starts looking into Janet McIntyre. They discover that she had indeed gone to the lawyer to ask about the will and what happens if Leonard Vole is convicted of murder. Well, they need a suspect and they need to clear the case. And she's obviously a, she's a deranged the, lesbian <laughs> lady's maid. So <laughs> She was nominated. She was nominated and hung. and hung. Yes, nominated, convicted, and hung. So John Mayhew has that on his conscience as well. And then he goes back to his room, knowing that all this has happened, and meets his wife. And I did it all for you. I did it all for love. And she, you know. I love you. I love you. But she doesn't say I love you. And he's trying to wrangle that out of her. And she finally snaps and tells him the truth. I hate you. I have hated you ever since you murdered our son. And we can manage together as a married couple. I will see that you are taken care of. Yeah, I am never going to let you touch me that way again. You can find a mistress now you that can, you're wealthy. <laughs> yes, you can find a mistress. And he says, I only want you. But, you know, when you think about it, it's like he never saw her. He was working very, very hard. But at the same time... He never let her into his life. He never tells her about the cases. I think the, and the one thing she did, she was able to give Leonard Vole a clean shirt for his uh, testimony. That's right. But there wasn't any indication that there was anything else going on between them. Yeah, that there was an emotional connection. And I think about how she sat across the table from him, mending his, you know, darning his socks or whatever it was that she was doing, some kind of handwork without a thimble. And <laughs> she's stabbing herself in her finger as though she is trying to feel something. And he doesn't notice. Comes to realize he's never, as she says, I think you don't want love. You want forgiveness. forgiveness. 
And if she, he's not going to get it from her. He, oh yeah, and, he is not getting it from her. And so he is just so devastated. Leonard Vole got away with murder. He had an innocent woman hung. He still, none of this redeemed his son who died on the battlefields in France, gassed on his 17th birthday. His wife will never forgive him. Never. Because he lied about their son's age in order to get his son into the army. So he walks out onto the tidal flats, and it takes a little while. I guess it must be low tide. And he walks out into the ocean, and there's the crescent moon in the sky. And you're right, the same crescent moon that we saw Romaine sitting on on a stage singing, uh, Let Me Call You Sweetheart. And this was like the last half hour of the movie. It was like 90 minutes all the way up to the trial and the ending. And then there's like more? There's more story to this? There were there were things that I didn't like when Leonard met Romaine on the front lines in World War One. I, oh, I just Lord. couldn't buy it. Absolutely not. First off, what is she doing alive out there in an empty bunker? And where are all the other soldiers? Where are the bodies? Where are the destroyed vehicles? I mean, those places look absolutely horrifying. They were charnel houses, and there were bits of there would have been bits of bodies everywhere. And, and weapons and, and ordnance and, and... And, you know, broken up vehicles and all you see is mud flats. It's just mud. I mean, it's almost like the mud flats. It's as empty as the mud flats that uh, Mayhew walks across. across to get to the tide. It's as empty as that. And those tides, you know, the, the mud flats wouldn't be empty and neither were the battlefields. And I just can't believe that that's how Leonard Vole met Romaine. I could believe if he met her in a basement cabaret. I could believe if he met her in a whorehouse behind the lines. Which apparently she, that's where she ended up. Her parents took her to Belgium and the Germans invaded and apparently killed her parents along with thousands of other civilians, which sort of happened. You know, there, there were a lot of atrocities. There, there was a lot of atrocities then. No question. And then apparently she was taken to France where she was serving with the Germans because she could sing. She, she could entertain. She, she could entertain the troops in their own language. Remember, as an Austrian. She knew German. She spoke German because that's what they speak in Austria. They speak German. They have this pretty young girl who can sing songs in their own language and. Entertain them in other ways. No and doubt. entertain them in other ways too, I'm sure. And if Leonard had met her in the whorehouse behind the lines and she is desperate to escape, I could buy that. But no, I could not buy any of that of him discovering her in an empty bunker in a sea (laughs) of mud, no bodies, no ruined vehicles, nothing. Just couldn't buy it. I do think that the one thing that Sarah Phelps could have put in was expanded the role of Emily French's nephew because I always notice when you have people who apparently have no ties whatsoever to anyone. And that's really unlikely. I understand that it makes for simpler storytelling, but that's not real. Even if you just saw them in the background, a mention of her angry relatives on her husband's side, you know, what do you mean she's giving all that money to that worthless uh, bounder? The Anything that said she was not 100% isolated from every other human being on the face of the earth, because nobody is, you know, unless you were a genuine orphan. And if you were a genuine orphan, you're probably not going to be marrying the incredibly wealthy Mr. French and inheriting his factory or whatever it is, because Mr. French would have relatives. What, you were both orphans? 
So how you would how would you compare this with the Marlene Dietrich version? I assume of the three, the Jeff Bridges version is going to be the third. Bo Bo Bridges. Bo Bo. It's okay. Bo. It's, it's Bo. Oh, that's right. Bo with his bulbous face and not Jeff Bridges, who is much who cool, his cooler Lebowski. brother. Yes, he was he was the Lebowski. So I think they were both very good. They're they're different. They're different, and it depends on how you feel about watching a murderer get away with it because with the stage play and i see why agatha made these changes with the stage play romaine discovers to her shock and horror that she did everything for love she was willing to perjure herself for love in order to save leonard and then she discovers after the trial when she is going to be hustled off to jail for several years for perjury but leonard is safe and he's got all of the money and he'll wait for her and then this blonde cookie shows up. Oh, Leonard, now we can go on that cruise you promised. And she knifes him. He had it coming. <laughs> <laughs> but in here, they get away with it. And Janet McIntyre is hanged. I mean, she did murder the cat, but... <laughs> Hanging is a little too... too Hanging is a little too much for murdering for the cat. It's very much grittier than the uh, 1957 version. The emphasis on John Mayhew, solicitor, instead of Sir Charles, the King's counsel, makes a huge difference. I liked them both. I would skip the Beau Bridges, Diana Riggs version, but I liked both of them, but they were not. They are not the same movie and really shouldn't be compared because the tone is so different, particularly at the ending. Well, and if you're interested in it, you can see both of them and you'll have a lot to talk about. And one of the things, of course, that you have to pay attention to is at the end when Mayhew confronts Leonard and Romaine in the hotel room and they spout off about how you made us this way oh, because you Lord. sent us to war. Well, you know, folks, <clears throat> millions of people go to war over the billions over the course of history and they do not come home and cosh old ladies over the head. They don't. They just cope. Oh, and they also they were saying, oh, yes, I'm a monster. Romaine is a monster. And so are you, John. And I'm thinking, no. That's... No, because he, he had his failures, but he didn't kill anybody. Yeah. And, you know, he you didn't know. deliberately murder someone, and he had no intention of having his son die, I'm sure. But it was just the patriotic thing to do. And there were a lot of men who went off to war in that same spirit in 1914. They and thought they they'd be home by Christmas, and they came home very different. They came home very, very different. So when you watch Leonard and Romaine self-justify, they're wrong. And that must be one of the frustrations I felt is that you just really wanted Mayhew to say, but I'm not like you. But he just, he couldn't. He was a weak man. He was not able to say, you're wrong. Because most of the young men who came back, or the older men who came back, they did not murder anyone. They got on with their lives as best they could. Leonard Vole was always a user. He, he lucked out and won the genetic lottery with his looks and his mannerisms. But he's part of the Timson family. Yeah. But there's also the case as well. I'd be curious to talk to lawyers and barristers about this because they go through this frequently. They go into a case. They know he did it or they know he didn't do it. And justice was not served. And I told, told you this story. I met an etymologist at a writer's conference. He was talking about his book on bugs, using bugs in legal cases to establish guilt or innocence. And he had just came in from Seattle. He had just testified at this trial in which he knew the guy did it. 
and he had the evidence to show it, but the jury disagreed. And I said, how do you feel about that when that happens? And he had to shrug and say, well, you have to, you just have to go on to the next case. There's nothing you can do about it. And this is John Mayhew is in the same situation. And he should be able to go on to the next case because sometimes you lose. Sometimes you make a mistake. Granted, he made a pretty big mistake with Janet McIntyre, but she wasn't sympathetic and Leonard Bull was. So he went with the sympathetic person, which proves also that you should pay more attention to your facts. And this is, again, this this shows John Mayhew is not Poirot or Miss Marple because he made some really basic mistakes. And you could see that there was enough time passing that he could ask these questions. He could have followed up on Christine Moffat, you know, going back to the theater where she was acting and asking around to find out what did happen to Christine. And then he would have learned, oh, she went off to have a baby. He would have asked that question. He would have known he was being lied to. Now, granted, he didn't have a lot of time, but he could have asked questions or the same thing like with Romaine and supposedly her having a husband in an asylum or some story like that. Again, if you've got a little bit of time, you send someone off to ask questions. He took everything they said to him at face value. And Poirot and Miss Marple would both tell you, never trust anything, never believe anything anybody tells you without verifying it from someone else. So this is our discussion for the witness for the prosecution. Uh, this is part of the Sarah Phelps Film Festival. Yes, and this is the one that's set in the 1920s. Next time will be, I think, coming Ordeal up next is Innocence. Ordeal by Innocence, Ordeal. and that's going to be set in the 50s. And we still have the ABC Murders with John Malkovich to come. Which is set in the 1930s. And, so we've and, seen The Pale Horse, which we loved. Yes, set in the 1960s. And we saw And Then There Were None. Set in the 40s, which, which we, loved we loved as well. So, you know, this so far, it's been... She's very highly recommended here because we do like this. So she's 3-0 and so far. Even with the flaws, she's 3-0. and And when you uh, compare her to some of the other adaptations, I mean, I think she's true to the spirit. She can play fast and loose with the text, but not the way some of the other productions have done. Like you know, the Sidiford where you, Mystery. The Sidiford Mystery. Oh, God. <laughs> but she is putting Agatha Christie in front of a new audience that might not have ever considered her. Which is also quite fascinating, as we're seeing now with objections to current IPs being used, such as Lord of the Rings with the Rings of Power, and how they really are going off the reservation with regards to staying true to the spirit of Tolkien. And how we see this, you can show you can still tell a compelling story and remaining true to the original source material. Yes, you can. And I would recommend this. So Don't the, watch the 82 version, though. <laughs> I'm actually a Diana Rigg fan, but frankly, there's plenty of... Go watch your Avengers reruns. <laughs> no, no, no. Go watch Evil Under the Sun. Oh, yes, definitely. Wow. Yeah, that was great. That was great. And this is Agatha Christie. She watched with Bill Peschel. And I'm Teresa. And we'll see you at the movies. Agatha Christie, She Watched, is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel, produced by Bill Peschel. Theme song, Call to Adventure, by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery, She Watched, email peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.